Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. Uh, thanks for joining us for an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Susie. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. You're sporting a deadly science t-shirt. I know. I'm so sciencey today, hey? <laughs> I'm always so sciencey. I know. Uh, Dr. Ewan, good morning, buddy. Good morning. You're sporting the black cockatoo t-shirt. Yeah, red tail black cockatoo. Love it. Very nice. Yeah. I, feel, I feel underdressed or I something. I know. I'm what just, is going on? I don't know. I'm just, I just, <laughs> well, actually, I do have a lot of very geeky t-shirts. As well, I yet to see physics them. or, you know, well, astronomy things. Uh, yeah, there's one with um, uh, Picard on it. You of know, course. Uh, there's another one with uh, <laughs> what is the out- outline of the James Webb Telescope uh, mirror array. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Uh, there's another one with a schematic for a rocket. They're, they're themed in a certain way, you might say. I don't have any bird T-shirts. I would I expect any... nothing less. Good to hear. You <laughs> <laughs> need a dress code here, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, embrace we, it. Yeah, well, we're doing what we're doing. Liv's doing a Twitter feed. Uh, she's wearing... What's she got? She's, oh, she's got, got a butterfly, butterfly. see? Yeah, yeah, it's all happening. Yeah, so Rocking at this side of the panel. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, so... Uh, <laughs> I feel appropriately, uh, you know, put down. Um, well, anyway, today, folks, we've got a couple of great guests coming in. We've got someone who's just come back from Antarctica, which should be cool. Uh, we're also talking about some cool eye stuff, which I always get a bit excited when we have eye science in the room. And we're going to be doing a usual news, which we're going to start with. Uh, do you want to start us off, Dr. Susie? Sure thing, sure thing. I want to talk about ALS a little bit, actually. Oh, yeah. So okay. ALS, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, for the people who don't know what ALS means. Nasty, nasty modern urine disease, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, very made famous by people like Stephen Hawking, I guess. You know, people mm-hmm. know... That um, if you live long enough, you know, you basically lose all your motor functions in your body. And while you're mentally still very aware, you kind of like watch yourself degrade, which is really mm-hmm. terrible to watch for your family as much as yourself, I guess. Um, and it is also made famous by the Ice Bucket Challenge with, you know, it's going to turn 10 this year. Right. Wow. That makes me feel really old. <laughs> I still <laughs> haven't done you. that challenge. Have you done the challenge? No. No. And it, I, I don't think I want to do it for the 10-year anniversary either. Yeah. But I'd, I'd pay to not do it. Can you maybe pay Maybe we should have an Einstein Bucket yeah. Challenge. <clears throat> all in. I'd, one for I'd all. be in for that. Mm. Well, just Dr. a Shane warm, a warm water. No, I don't think <laughs> nah, that's quite. <laughs> I find those. I end up with a migraine. <laughs> it's not good. It's fair enough. Anyway, yep. so for me as a scientist, I guess I always watch these these challenges online a bit, and I think you know it's so good and well that all the famous people, you know, get buckets of ice mm-hmm. pulled over their head and like feel how great they are in life. But what do you get out of it, right? And so it's kind of nice to see that this actually led to something. So right. this last week, there's a study published from a group in Heidelberg University in Germany, and they looked at um, a new class of drugs called twin F interface inhibitors that can actually protect neurons in ALS patients. And they wow. tested this in ALS, you know, bred mice. And brain organoids from human ALS t- patients, and they saw that they can protect the neurons and like lessen the disease of mu- motor neuron, 
you know, disorder basically. So they can protect them from losing their motor function for wow. quite a while. So not so not tested in humans yet, but tested in human organoids. So yes. mini mini brains. Yeah, basically. This, brain is the, in the dish. this is the greatest thing, right? I'm like, <clears throat> if you know me, which you should by now, I'm you know a microfluidics <laughs> person. So anything that has to do with things in tiny representing the big world is all down my alleyway. And yeah. so you know this whole organoid topic and, and organs on a chip is a huge thing at the moment. And you know one of the key focal points that we should look into but having a, a human brain on a chip is one thing but then having a diseased human brain mm. you know that you can test things on like like yeah, you yeah. know these drugs yeah. it's just it's incredible and they tested it on you know cells from als patients their brain cells they harvested them put them on you know grew them up and they saw that th- this works yeah that's wild i know it? yeah i remember about 20 years ago when we were first talking about um stem cells and i was sort of trying to put together you know, people talking about, oh, stem cells, you can do this, you can pair this. And I was thinking, hang on, the thing that interested me the most was, you know, a vast portion of drugs as they develop end up for a variety of reasons not being viable. Yeah. And so if I end up some really weird ass disease that I, you know, that for which there are no viable treatments for the population at large, take some of my cells, turn them back into stem cells, Put them in a dish and test, uh, test some of those funky drugs on my cells yep. with my disease. It's like personalized diagnostics, Yeah, right? yeah. And, and then it's not going to affect me at all, but if it works, it works for me. Yeah. And we're not there yet, but we're, you know, this it's is another example. It, we're yeah. heading in that direction. Totally. I remember talking about it 20 years ago, and I think, gee, you know, this stuff takes time, and it does, because you've yeah, got to be careful. But, you know, whenever I hear about stem cells and the potential, for me, the massive one was grabbing those literally billions of dollars worth of drugs and they're mm. on shelves not being used because you know on a population level they're they're dangerous or yeah. their, their efficacy is not high enough yeah. but for individuals that went through the trials maybe 13 yeah. percent were okay and they were really effective but yeah and that's for the rest yeah yeah and it's like I'm, I'm so intrigued by this because, you know, what many people don't know, I actually, like, my granddad died of ALS. Right. So it's in my family. And I'm, I'm terrified of this. It's a terrifying yeah. disease yep. because you can't really pre-test it. There's some, you know, test with mediocre out, outcomes where you can think if you get it or not, and then it terrifies you and freaks you out for the mm. rest of your life. You mm. can't do anything. You right. can't treat yeah, it. Yeah, you can't treat You it. can't prevent it. You're literally having a ticking time bomb of genetics in you. And, you know, I've watched my granddad you know, lose all of his motor function mm. while being mentally very switched on. It's mm. terrifying. And I reckon for families, this can be, you know, a glimmer of hope in a way, yep. because yep. I, I reckon people would do give a lot for having a treatment that yep. just protects you and delays this as much yeah. as it just possible. Slows it, down. it just yeah. slows yeah. it down. And it's yeah. just, that is just fantastic. And it's like a new complete class of drugs that is not, you know, classified as in dress now. And they're researching this and it's, I, I found this super fascinating. So here yeah. you go. You yep. a glimmer of hope on a Sunday morning. It's very exciting. Very I know. exciting. So we'll, we'll keep a watch. Me too. Hopefully it will. And then we know, do an Antonagogo ice bucket challenge. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> She's got to keep it away well, from the panel. Can we do it though. during the summer? You can't, yeah. It, I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's like not summer right now. I'm thinking maybe I'd rather winter because it's the contrast that kills you. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'd, I'd rather be already freezing on a really cold winter's day and then do it. Because it wouldn't be that much worse. As long because as you did it today, of hot chocolate or something that's yeah. like ready to go. <laughs> I want one of, those, <laughs> one of those thermal blankets that they put on people at the end of movies, right. like Die Hard, just to make sure you're all warm, you know, and something like that. So yeah. I feel like you just busted <clears throat> humans, you know, with the ice bucket under the table. And it's like, oh, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you had plans. You, you're realizing I'm weak. 
Um, you know, I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, Ewan, what do you got? So, <laughs> speaking of tiny things that are really important and affecting larger, more, you know, bigger things, uh, I want to talk about a study that I just think is really fascinating that comes from Kenya and it was recently published in the journal Science. And it's about the impacts of an invasive ant species called the big-headed ant. And in Africa, there's a species of acacia. So I'm sure you've all seen, you know, pictures and footage and David Attenborough documentaries and so forth of savannas where you have these big acacia trees that sort of sit out in the middle of the grasslands of savannas. They have a really complex relationship uh, with a species of native ant, the native acacia ant. And basically, they live in these spiky bulbs that are hollow and they get fed essentially nectar by the tree and in defense they have home so they've got the home and the and, and the food but they defend the tree against herbivory in particular elephants so when elephants come along to feed on those trees they swarm and start biting the the elephant on the trunk right really painful right you're going for a nice meal and all of a sudden you just got like thousands of ants inside your trunk, biting you, stinging you, etc., right? Not very nice. Elephant, the natural enemy of the ant, who would know? (laughs) But what's happened is, um, 20-odd years ago, this invasive ant called the big-headed ant has turned up, and it's basically started killing this native ant left, right, and centre. Did you say the big-headed antus? The big-headed ant has turned up. Oh, the big-headed ant? Yeah, Yeah, the big-headed ant. So another species of ant has turned up that's invasive, and they're not entirely sure how it turned up, but it's got there, and it's spread throughout these um, savannah ecosystems. And what's happened is quite dramatic. So um, where there are these... um, there's no ants, basically. These the small ants which defend the trees. The amount of herbivory by elephants has gone up by seven times. Whoa. So, basically, all these trees are getting smashed by elephants. Hungry elephants. And that, in turn, has influenced the ability of lions to hunt zebra. So, basically, lions are ambush predators, right? Yep. So, they rely on cover, both to see their prey, but also to get close enough to their prey to launch an attack. When the habitat becomes far more open because there's mm-hmm. less trees, that means that zebra actually have a much better chance. Even though the lions can see the zebra, the zebra can get away before the lions can get to them, right? they're faster. Yeah, they're faster fast for a short yeah. distance. For a short distance, yeah. Like a cheetah, etc. Yeah. They yeah. can, they're burst athletes and then they yeah. run out of puff, as opposed to things like wolves and so forth, which can just keep going all day hours. long. Yep. So these habitats have become far more open, and as a result, the lions have had to switch their prey to buffalo. Now, buffalo are big, horrible, you know, nasty things, actually far more dangerous to take down a buffalo than take down zebra. So they've gone from 0% of, in their diet of buffalo to about 40%, and the, the lion diet, uh, sorry, the zebra diet has declined uh, quite dramatically. And so it's a really amazing study. They looked at several thousand plots across this savannah landscape where they measured, you know, the number of zebra, the number of um, uh, whether the, the big-headed ant was present or absent, zebra kills by lions, and they even collared uh, with GPS collared um, lionesses to see how effective their hunting was. So it's a really rigorous study, and I think it's just an incredibly nice example of how incredibly <coughs> interlinked species are, yeah. and you only need to, like, pull on one little lever or, or fill, yeah. fill, you yeah. know, um, muck up one thing, and the whole system changes. It's just so I'm about to start teaching in a few weeks uh, at uni, it's and I'm like, exam. perfect, there's a lecture done right there. So the, the, cool, the cool thing about that one, too, is that often when you hear about these, it's like a, a small insect to a small animal yeah. to a small animal to yeah. a slightly bigger size. Yeah. But this you've gone from ant to elephant. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's a big jump yeah. in size, yeah. which you and normally wouldn't... Yeah. 
Peninsula yeah. and, and Buffalo. It's yeah. uh, it's quite an amazing study. So I think, yeah, just, I guess and also highlights, of course, the impact that invasive species can have. Some that are really obvious, like deer around the Dandenong Ranges and how they're impacting, yep. you know, vegetation. But some of them are uh, more mm. subtle unless you're obviously observing really carefully. So, yeah, it's an amazing study. We need to, we need to train these big-headed ants to attack the elephant trunks. <laughs> Indeed. Like this... <laughs> Okay. There's something missing there. Like it's weird that one ant really Uncircus. has an issue with this because presumably yeah. the elephant is destroying the ants' habitat there too. Or is yeah, absolutely. The- yeah, the ants live. The the native yeah. ants live in these trees. Like yeah. they have these basically sort of bulbous structures that have right. a thorn on them, but they're getting this nectar award from the tree as well. So it's a, a, what we call a mutualism, right? So yeah. both parties are benefiting. But yeah, um, because these um, big-headed ants are killing them left, right, and centre, they're losing their home and it the habitat's changing. Quite does make you appreciate Australian border security a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Like, well, I was always yeah. freaked out by this. And then well, now when you hear this, and like a little ant that can just jump into your And luggage. it's funny you mention yeah. that because, of course, fire ants are yeah, now expanding spreading. their distribution yeah. from Queensland into New South Wales and they will spread right throughout large parts of Australia and they're going to have an awful impact both on agriculture but yeah. also just on our day-to-day lives mm. because anyone that's being stung by a fire ant will tell you yep. it's, it's horrendous. Yep. Yep. So, can confirm. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, no, I've, uh, I've been I'm German, to avoid you know, those. you yeah. always get the big hits in Australia because <laughs> we go everywhere and think it's, it's safe. It's weird. Like most Australians I know, like if you say blue bottle, nah. Fire it, nah. All the things that we, yeah, you know, front of the website, nah. <laughs> nah. Redback, nah. nah. Like snake, nah. Um, but any, anyone from <laughs> visitors, <laughs> any visitors are like, yep, yep, yep. yep. Like, where were you sticking your hands? That's, yeah. Well, that's, yep. why, that's why all the crocodile signs up North Queensland are in German, right? Because yep. we all go Achtung. in the water and be like, <laughs> Oh boy. All right. Well, uh, taking a broader look of the world on a very small scale though. Uh, in the last couple of days, NASA has launched the new PACE mission. I'm not sure if you guys heard about this, but this is wild. So one of the things that's starting to happen with some of the, the, the NASA science missions is because many of them offer the data freely open source, so anyone can access it. And some of the ones that have started monitoring aspects of climate are probably a bit uncomfortable, I think, for some countries, mm. you know, maybe else, uh, because they freely, you know, put out data on um, emissions around the world and so forth. Well, PACE is a new one. And what this one does, it stands for, get this, Plankton Aerosol Climate Ocean Ecosystem Satellite. That's a mouthful. Yeah, that's what we say. PACE. <laughs> um, anyway, but what it essentially is there to do is it has this hyperspectral um, colour camera yep. that is designed really to look at the oceans and look at what's happening in them using a range of um, different light spectrum. So it, it will use ultraviolet, visible, near infrared, the whole lot, right? So it's got a real broad range of um, camera capabilities. But what it's going to do primarily is track the distribution of phytoplankton around the world on a daily basis. So if you think about that, that's never been done. Like it's, no, that's it, incredible. It's, first of all, it's never been done from space, but it's never been done on that time scale. Mm. So you know, when we think about um, the way in which the oceans absorb, utilize, um, interact with the CO2 system yep. of the world, phytoplankton's a pretty big issue. And algae blooms and so forth are as yep. well. There's all sorts of things there where we're seeing that dynamic aspect of yep. the oceans. And as we're starting to talk about more and more, climate change in terms of changes to the oceans is probably more profound than changes to the land. Oh, for sure. Mm. And so this will allow people to basically um, measure 
how, how much is going on in that space around the world in different locations? Because I think at the moment it's kind of a happenstance that, oh, someone saw that algae bloom over yeah. there or, you know, they saw this over there. But now we'll be mapping that on a global scale um, daily, which is Fantastic. quite phenomenal. Ex- exciting and terrifying, right? Yeah. yeah. Equal measures. I know. But I think we need, you know, this is where we need this kind of long longevity yeah. data so that we can start mapping how these changes are occurring. Like, is there more? Is there less? Mm. Is, it in, is the distribution around the globe changing to different locations that weren't there before? Like, what does that all look like? So I just think it's phenomenal that we're measuring something as small as phytoplankton yeah. um, by From putting space. a rocket <laughs> into orbit and launching a satellite that has a very high-end camera. A series of cameras to to do these measurements. It'll, it'll look at other things as well. Um, they're also going to be looking at how how sunlight interacts with certain particles in the atmosphere and what that that does, because that's obviously a big element mm. of, of the the warming climate or the change not warming climate, but the cha- warming overall temperature and the changing climate, um, and you know some of those complexities. So, I mean, this is an exciting one. It kind of it's sort of snuck in under the radar. You wouldn't have seen. It. It's not like the James Webb telescope where it ends up on the news. <laughs> you know, like these things just go up and no one hears. Mm. About about them, uh, but I think in terms of the sort of data we'll be getting, we'll start hearing about this and and mapping some of these things, and it'll be wild. And freely available, right? And this freely is, available. This is be so I mean, great. this is this is one of the things I find amazing that you know, if if I had an infinite amount of time on my hands, I would be downloading data from the web 100%. on a daily basis. And like even the other day, like um, the Juno spacecraft just did another flyby of of the moon Io. And, you know, it's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. And, like, I, I saw all these people I know online sort of, like, doing their own, like, data analysis and, mm-hmm. and sending in their, their image sort of reconstructions and so forth. And I'm thinking, if I had a lot of time, I would just sit there <laughs> all day and do this. Like, I would I would do this all day. Like, just I have the feeling that you have a long list of things you would do when you oh, had a, a long list. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why, you know, and I say, you know, say to my kids, but I need the, I need the robot body because um, I've got about four lifetimes <laughs> backlog of stuff I want to play around with. And the NASA data, there is so much you can play around with. But that I think can it's, fill a lifetime in itself, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think um, it's great that people can get on and, and have a look at that mm. stuff. And it's it really is worth going to nasa.gov, just clicking on, you know, find a mission. Just they, they're listed by missions. Find one and say, okay, I want to have a look at what that stuff has mm. generated. And you can see videos and pictures and, and YouTube videos explaining it all. But it's it's just wild. It's so interesting. And having that sort of access to the information we've never had you know, in the past. And I just think you have to wait for a newsreel or something. But now you can go there and go to the source, which is yep. just, which is wild. So it's like nerdy citizen science. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we were nerds in this room, that's what we would do. I mean, you know. Thank God we're not nerds in yeah, this room. I know. <laughs> well, folks, uh, on that note, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with more science with our first guest, uh, in just a, just a sec. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio with us now is Dr. Paul Gurr. Paul is a Senior Research Fellow in the Polymer Science Group in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Paul, welcome to Triple R. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Shane and all the other doctors in the room. It's, um, uh, I think, yeah, he's a professor. I don't even talk to him anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing, actually, when you look at the Einstein and Grego crew. When I recruited many of them, you know, they just, they were just basically off the bottle. You know, they, they barely started. <laughs> I and feel now, targeted right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, thank uh, you. And now, like, almost all of them are full or associate professors. And I think, you know, we're all getting older, but it's, uh, it's there a good, you go. it's That a is thing. true. Paul, you and I bumped into each other, what, 20 years ago? 
It's at Melbourne a, University, yeah, it's quite a while, a while ago. We haven't changed a bit, have we? <laughs> oh, I haven't. No. <laughs> no, we haven't changed a bit. We're uh, getting younger. Now, it's interesting. I saw um, uh, one of your good colleagues at uh, the university sent me some stuff, uh, Megan, on, on Friday, because I think there's a lot of excitement about some of the work that you guys are doing around corneal blindness. And I think this is something we don't talk about a lot, but give us a little bit of um, what's happening there, because we don't often think about blindness around the cornea and so forth. We often think about the retina. But what's, what's happening with the cornea for people? So depending on the studies that we've looked at, um, there's estimates that around 13 million people worldwide suffer from corneal blindness. So it's, it's either the third or fourth uh, most cause of blindness in the world. Uh, and it, uh, mostly it's from disease mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to op- optical variances. Um, let, let's begin this by saying I'm a polymer scientist, so right, this yeah. is all what I've learned about the medical field. <laughs> That's good. However, so what I have learned is that it's a, it's a big problem for the world to have enough donor tissue to be able to fix uh, do surgery on people that have this issue. Um, and there are many areas around the world where people don't even have access if they wanted to for, for surgery or for um, corneal tissue donation. So uh, currently one in 70 patients in with with the corneal disease actually receive the necessary surgery they require mm. and, and the and when we talk about the cornea i mean I, I i suppose for me i've often thought of it as it's the part that does most of the refraction of light into the eye it but it's also an incredibly complicated structure like it actually it's immune response everything is you know quite complicated right it's not so, a simple it's not like the lens right so uh it's made up the cornea itself is a full a full structure and uh, there's the cells of the uh, epithelium then you've got the stromal layer and then the decimates membrane and uh, endothelial layer that below we initially have been working on the endothelial layer at the at the lower part and trying to come up with solutions for helping surgeons uh, replacing the decimates layer mm. um, i can go into the structure of the decimates layer it's yeah, a very yeah. so- very delicate tissue uh, less than 10 micron thick Right. So the the human hair is roughly around 100 micron. Hmm. And the best type of surgery that can be done is when you're just using the decimates membrane in the surgery. The difficulty is, because of the, the outcomes for the patients, the difficulty is that this decimates membrane uh, is like glad wrap, sticky yeah, glad right. wrap. It, it curls up and it's very hard to do this, this surgery. Um, so in our initial project, uh, Hygelix, we developed this material that could support that very delicate tissue. Right. I was going to say, how do you, I mean, how does the surgeon grab a 10 micron thick <laughs> bit of glad wrap? And because I'm trying to, I did some work on glad wrap about 15 years ago in the lab. <laughs> and I'm trying to think, how thick was that? Like, it's, that's actually pretty thick. Um, Relatively, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Compared to what you're talking about. I, I mean, you can barely even see that physically. I mean, that must be incredibly tough for them to pull out. And so the great thing about our hydrogel that we make, it is clear. But right. the bad thing about that is that, you know, you've got to be able to see it to uh, do the implantation. So there's, yeah. there's difficulties in doing the actual surgery. Right. Um, and so it's the idea then to replace our natural um, part of the eye there with a synthetic, essentially, that you would you would grow? So the first part of the project was to take uh, donor tissue, mm-hmm. so the, the dissonance membrane, yeah. and to have it supported by um, this polymer hydrogel to okay. clear stretchy, yep. stretchy biodegradable polymer. Uh, and do that implantation. And for that, we can get one donor and we can treat one patient. Right, yep. The recent funding that was announced with the uh, University of Sydney and several other organisations, um, we're looking at the full synthetic cornea, so we're looking to grow cells on this membrane, which can replicate um, all of the layers uh, 
Stromal, the Stromal section is another, the group at University of Sydney and Wollongong are developing 3D printed stroma, for instance. Wow. Another group's working on the endothelial cells. So there's, there's a whole consortium that's working together. But the, the benefits of ch- taking what we've currently got to grow cells on the, on the membrane will be to take one donor and generate 30 um, implants. Oh, wow. That's, that's phenomenal. Can, can I make a personal request? Can you guys grow one that has fewer nerve endings? <laughs> I mean, have you guys ever have a corneal scrape? Have you had that test? No. Like, it is the most painful Doesn't thing. Sound like, fun. The the cornea seems to have so many nerve endings. Like it is such a complicated structure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So let's just get rid of the nerve endings when you grow these things because I want the ones where you can't feel it when dusk. No. I mean, obviously it's very important, but I think we this is a part of the eye that. Um, yeah, I mean, the lens is one thing, but this is a complicated part of the eye. So in terms of, gr- like, so you'd be growing them partially from cells derived from a single donor you would take? So, um, yeah, using corneal endothelium cells, you can grow um, those on top of this inert, but, bi- sorry, bioactive yep. uh, polymer support layer. Right. Um, and yeah. from a polymer scientist's point of view, we can change and vary all the components that are in that to make them more biologically active or to make them more inert. We can make them degrade quicker or slower depending on the application mm. for other areas we're working on. Um, so there's a lot of the in-between research until we get to clinical yeah, yeah. trials. But yeah. So one of the things that always fascinates me, and this is where I need your expertise, is the, the, the polymer chemist guy who knows how to do this, but you, you're talking about layers here that have to be very, like, precisionly dropped in in a way that means there's no ambiguity in terms of thickness, right? So, like, I mean, you can't have one bit's a bit lumpy and the other bit's not because the optics of that will be, like, prohibitive in terms of use. So how the devil do you do that, like, on a sub-micron sort of scale, knowing that you have exactly that number of layers when you grow these things? Right. So in preparing the hydrogels themselves, we do solution casting of three different components that go into it and we um, we uh, solution cast them in an oven to evaporate off the solvent so gravity is causing the top layer to be very flat and we're using a flat layer to start with we're then floating these off and then punching out little uh, contact lens size materials right Um, we've got quality control where we can determine the thickness so you'd be aware of all the instrumentation available at melbourne uni Um, so we can use 3d microscopy to verify thicknesses we can use sem uh, scanning electron microscopy to vary thicknesses. Right. Um, there are lots of way to, ways to do quality control. Important. The important parts are verifying the strengths as well, but also the clarity. Clarity is a very big feature. Mm. Uh, other approaches have that issue of, of not having that absolute clarity that we've got. Yeah. And w- you, you mentioned you sort of punch them out. So when you when you make this, how big is the piece that you start with? Like I, I have this image of this thing, like a newspaper coming off a right. off a roller, and then you make like, you know, 100,000 of these things. Like ha- so, how does that work? So in a laboratory, we're doing 20-centimeter discs, right. I guess, and then we're cutting out 11-millimeter corneal-sized um, uh, like contact lenses. Uh, to going, going to scale up commercialization, we imagine there'd be a more... Um, a, a larger surface area that we could produce. However, we're not sure the, the quantities that are going to be produced are not in the, you know, not like toothpicks or yeah, yeah. They're, they're very specialised fields. So um, we might need to scale up, um, but we don't envisage as many problems with that part of it. Yeah, you, you mentioned some aspects of these are um, biodegradable. Or, you know, they. So is that a necessary step when they're sort of inserted to the eye that part of that goes away, or do you mean over the longer term? So. We need the 
material to be strong enough that it can survive in solution for transport. So mm-hmm. say we're going to supply Southeast Asia or Africa, right. which have very limited numbers of um, corneas to <coughs> supply. Um, they've got to be able to survive that transport step. Mm-hmm. So they do have to be okay for you know 30 days, 40 days, three months, whatever right. it might be. Yep. But then again, once we get it into the eye, we don't want this material to stay there forever. Once it's right. served its purpose of the stroma is growing well, the tissue cells are growing well, we've um, replicated the decimates membrane, it can then dissolve and be taken away from the eye. Right, right. And we've shown uh, in vivo studies already that that can, that can actually happen. Huh. Um, and by varying the proportions of the chemicals in that hydrogel, um, we can increase or decrease that degradation mm. rate. Yeah, interesting. And in terms of the – you mentioned, like, like there's so many people around the world who need these – um, does this make the does this sort of artificial one? I know you've got this substructure now, but does this mean there'll be more surgeons capable of doing this sort of surgery as a result, or is that still a limiting factor in a lot of places? So, the, the best two ways for the surgery at the moment are DSEC surgery and DMEX surgery. So, one's a decimates membrane with stroma, so it's a much thicker graft, and this is one that's quite commonly done. Mm-hmm. Um, the patient outcomes for that are that there's a, a longer recovery time, there's a there's um, more rejection, right? Um, and the surgery takes uh, takes a shorter time, but then yeah, it's not the best way to do it. The better way is the um, DMEX surgery, where you're just using the decimates membrane itself, and then implanting that. And I already discussed how the the mm. nature of that tissue is so delicate that mm. surgeons don't go with it. Yeah, yeah. But if they could with this this support, yeah, right. then you're actually improving that procedure, and the patient outcomes going to be a lot better. Yeah, yeah. I guess in terms of surgeons choosing to go with it or not, um, how much of this process is automated? And you know, I, again, I'm still trying to get my head around just how tiny these structures are and the precision that's required to get it right. Right. And you know, the ability for someone to keep their hands still and all these things. So how 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 much is sort of automating these these things in terms of installing it into an eye and you know, robots and so forth? I mean, where, where is it going with that? Right. So the procedure itself, and I've seen this. I haven't done this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, they take this whatever the the substrate is, whatever the yeah. tissue they're implanting. They roll it up in what's called a boosen glide, and it just presents it in a nice little curled shape. Yep. And then the surgeon makes an incision either side of the of the eye yeah and then he he places an implement to grab it sounds pretty horrible sorry <laughs> <laughs> and then they they grab it and drag it through, it through. In, into wow. the eye wow Not i'm just cringing over here so, it's fine. yeah yeah so, so mark daniels at the center for eye research um he's an ophthalmologist and he's um, very skilled at this procedure yeah but uh the issue is that, as i said you have difficulty in then uh, adjusting that to getting to getting it really flat yeah the the one we've got the hygelics uh, implant it pops open like a tent. Wow. Um, right. So it, it actually makes it a lot simpler in yeah. that process. So then you're not, you're not spending hours trying to get it in the right position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeez, it's, it's wild stuff. I, I find any of this where you, I, I, I always just think back to my, you know, year 11 biology class and there may, there may or may not have been an eye dissection involved in that. <laughs> and it went bad for everyone. And I think, I don't know how they do this precision work because like it is, you mm. know, basically a ball filled with fluid. You cut the wrong thing yep. and it's all over. So, and a very you know, slippery ball at yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's incredible stuff. And um, anyway, I, I, I think this is this is fascinating. You guys have managed to do this, and I think it really will give a lot of people hope that there's um, there's a way you know back to their sight. I mean, because these are in many cases people whose retinas and everything are working perfectly, and you know it's it's a different cause of blindness. So. Good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo, and hopefully we'll see these out in the in the field being in, in store, installed. installed. I'm going to use that term in people's eyes um, very soon. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for the invite.
Folks, uh, that was Dr. Paul Gurr of Polymer Science Group at the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements, and we'll be back with our second guest in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, we're back in the studio. Uh, it's Einstein and Go-Go. If you're not sure what's happening, you're listening to a science program for an hour, so you're halfway through, so might as well stay with us. In the studio with us now is Dr. Sophie Holland. Sophie is a research fellow and part of the Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future Program and is at the Department of Microbiology, Biomedicine, and the, sorry, at the Department of Microbiology and the Biomedicine Discovery Institute at Monash University. How are you going, Sophie? I'm going well, thank you. It's good to have you back, and by that I mean back from Antarctica. Yeah, like, yeah, it's great to be back. Is it great? Is it's it great a lot to be warmer. back? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so is you, it though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> today you, it is. Today it is. Uh, when did you come back? Uh, so we got back at the end of January right. uh, from a three-week trip to Antarctica. Right. Yeah. Right. Are we talking boat, plane, kayak? Plane. plane. Oh, but plane. A very, it, w- it was a very long plane in the end because we um, we went through Cape Town first. Yep. So we flew all the way to Cape Town. Oh, yeah. And then we were there for a few days. And then we flew south to an area of Antarctica called Drony Maudland, which is basically five and a half hours south of Cape Town. So it was a right. long journey. But not as long as on a boat, and I didn't have to test if I get seasick. <laughs> very pleased about. Good point. Uh, you and those his wife, Doctor Jen's been mm. down a couple of times, Twice. and there's the three or four days of hell. Yeah, um, she and- doesn't suffer seasickness, but right. many of her friends and colleagues did. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I would. I would opt for the plane. If, you know, <laughs> if, it, if anyone listening is thinking of you know shouting me a trip to Antarctica, um, plane, please. Yeah. Or I saw recently there was a boat that's going down with Bill Shatner. And uh, William Shatner from mm. Star Trek. And it's, it's only about 70,000 US dollars to get on this boat. Bargain. Bargain. Um, <laughs> but it looked palatial. And I'm thinking, if I'm going to... If I'm going to be thrown up for three days, I want to be in a nice room, not in a little cabin. But uh, so plane down. That's 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 interesting. Um, what was the weather like when you got down there? I mean... We were actually really lucky. Um, so we were kind of expecting or told to expect that, you know, of the three weeks, you might have, you know, four or five days that are just taken out by blizzards, mm. but we were super lucky. We had very little wind. There was only a couple of sort of much windier days, um, but we had blue skies and sunshine almost the whole time. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, felt very, very lucky. Yeah, and temperature-wise, where, where was it sort of sitting in the, during the day? Uh, during the day, so we were at two locations. One was very coastal and it got a bit warmer. Yep. It got above zero a few times Whoa. even, so it was wow. sitting more like minus five to sort of five. Yep. Um, and then at the more icier, snowier inland location, it was... Minus 15 at night, but sort of minus 10, minus 5 in the day. So that's kind of, it balmy. seems balmy. Yeah, yeah. I guess, it, well, I guess it's the summer months down. Uh, was it some months down there for you? Yeah, yeah summer yeah, so. down there. And I mean, yeah, we got kitted out with really good gear as well from work. Yeah. So I feel like we were actually all surprised that we were quite warm the whole time. Right, right. Yeah, I guess you, you do expect to, I, I would expect to be freezing my butt off down there, but I've, I've seen what people wear. And it's, you know, you'd probably be okay on the moon in some of that stuff, right? <laughs> it's, it's serious layers. Um, in terms of the work, though, I mean, you're, you're looking essentially at some of the really small stuff, the microbes that are, that are going on there. So we're talking soil collections, is that? 
Yeah. yeah. So um, we're really interested in the ice-free areas of Antarctica, yep. which is a relatively small proportion of the continent. It's only about 0.4% that's ice-free, but that is expanding with climate change. Right. Um, and so we're interested in bacteria that are in the soil and sort of looking at the diversity of what's there, both in terms of like who's there diversity-wise, but also what can they do. So I'm a lot more interested in the sort of functional diversity. What are the different metabolisms that are happening there um, and how you know things are going to change as the climate changes as well? So I remember a little while back having a guest on, uh, similar to yourself, who'd, who'd been down there, and they described sort of the, the top few centimetres of Antarctica as like a forest in terms of complexity. Is that is that what you're seeing in terms of the soil and the just the, the variety of lichens and all the different things there? Is it is it super complicated? I mean, definitely sort of, you know, the bacteria are going to be one of the most complicated groups there. Um, but I think... And in a sense, there, there is a lot of interactions going on. And, you know, we saw moss, we saw lichens. We mm. were collecting some moss for other colleagues who right. were at the University of Wollongong. Um, my colleague, Amy Liu, who's an ecologist, was also with us. And she was looking for springtails, which are very small invertebrates that live right. in the moss as well. And as she was on the show, I think, last year as yeah, well. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I think one of the nice things about Antarctica, one of the reasons I'm very interested in it, is actually almost due to the relative simplicity of of the ecosystem there compared to, say, a rainforest. There's so many far fewer organisms there Mm. that it kind of makes it a lot easier to study interactions between the organisms. So I'm interested as well not just in how the bacteria interact with each other but also how they're interacting with the moss or with the viruses. And when you take away so many levels, trophic levels of the ecosystem, it can be a bit easier to untangle all those interactions. And and with the soil stuff, you know, all the the microbes and things you've seen, what about the interaction? between that and the environment so not other critters in that run run around but um the environment itself so the atmosphere what we're pumping into it how that's changing the temperature changes the the nearby ice flows you know how does how does that all happen um yeah so there's a lot of interactions that will be going on depending on sort of what metabolism the bacteria have Mm. so we're particularly interested in bacteria that we call aerotrophs which are bacteria which can use trace gases in the atmosphere like hydrogen methane and carbon monoxide and they use that as their primary energy source and that's really interesting to us because that's sort of a layer of primary production in the environment especially ones that can then also get their carbon from carbon dioxide so all they really need to live and survive is just the air the that's air. in the atmosphere yeah, wow. and yeah. that's really interesting to us um, in yeah. terms of the limits of life yeah with these aerotrophs are there ones that sort of specialize on particular things so you just mentioned methane and co2 and obviously they're both huge problems with what's happening you know in terms of climate change so are you looking at that in terms of you know different types of bacteria that are foraging inverted commas on these different different types of you know nutrients so to speak and and what does that mean potentially for the future and, and whether we can help to mitigate climate change as an example by somehow using some of these bacteria that might gobble up methane so i guess yeah if you can sort of explain some of that yeah um so there are sort of specialists amongst them they won't all do all of the gases yeah. um so there will be differences and i think at this stage we're very much just looking to get sort of baseline data yeah. so we were doing some sampling in an area of antarctica that doesn't have as much sort of microbial sampling yeah. as other regions so trying to get that baseline data but then a lot of what we do back in the lab will be sort of simulating future climate situations <laughs> and seeing how does that change do we see more aerotrophs less aerotrophs and i am very interested at looking at the gas flux from the soil yeah. so trying to get real-time measurements um, 
um, potentially in future expeditions of, you know, how is CO2 moving? Is it a sink? Is it a source? Mm. Yeah. And how will that change? It's, it's interesting to me. Do you have to, when you do the work back in the lab, do you have to mimic the type of temperature conditions and so forth to make sure that the bacteria does what you want it to do? Yes. Um, so it's interesting. It's, well, it's more relevant, I guess, to do the experiments at an environmentally relevant temperature. Mm. But that does mean that instead of, you know, usually in microbiology, you're wanting incubators that do 30 degrees yeah, or 37 yeah. degrees. And we're instead trying to put things into like the walk-in freezer room at minus 20 <laughs> to see what it might be like in the winter or to get incubators that go sub-zero instead of... Yeah, that's nice. fascinating. So I have this image. Is there a cartoon somewhere of you with your feet up because your bacteria takes that much longer to, you know, do its thing in the lab? I mean, is, it, is there a time difference in the in the way in which the microbes you're looking at and so forth um, propagate relative to what you'd see back on you know Australia or other other sort of sites yeah things often are a lot slower at mm. colder temperatures um, so the experiments can take longer but I think one of the very interesting things about the atmospheric trace gas oxidation is that it can be surprisingly fast, even at minus eight. I know I had colleagues who were doing some experiments where, you know, some of those gases like hydrogen or mm. CO were being used within sort of 24 hours, even oh. at minus eight temperatures. So some yeah. of the bacteria that can do it, they are very efficient. They have these very efficient enzymes for scavenging mm-hmm. these yeah. gases. Yeah, I want this fascinating. It's so fascinating. Sorry, I come from a country where there's cold weather, and I'm like, do we have this? Like, how applicable <laughs> is this, you know, to the northern European countries or, or, or the Arctic, for no. example? Do you know if this is like completely different scenario because the other side of the planet, or is there some overlap? Is this like applicable to other cold countries? Yeah, so I think aerotrophs are found. Um, probably in a very wide range of environments. So we sort of first discovered them in Antarctica, um, but we've since, you know, had publications coming out of our lab which show that they're also in the marine environment, they're also in caves. Um, mm. Yeah, anywhere where they can sort of scavenge gas, I think the more we look, the more we'll find them. This oh, is so great. Mars. I'm happy about yeah, that. Yeah, other, other, other locations in the solar system. I, I, I love when we hear about some of these things in, you know, in areas like Antarctica where the environments are so extreme. And it brings me to a question of, like, Ability to adapt. So, when, I mean, some of this data I know is fairly new, and presumably over time you'll start to learn this, but do you have any insights as to how adaptable some of these organisms will be, especially given what's happening at the moment with the climate shifting in Antarctica in particular? Um, yeah, so I think, I think, I mean, the nice thing about microbes or the thing that I find amazing about microbes is that they are so adaptable. And even mm. when you go to a place that you think there cannot possibly be anything alive mm. here, you'll find a microbe yep. and it will yep. be alive, eking out an existence somehow. And that's one of the things that first got me very excited about microbiology, you know, when people are like, we drilled 2.5 kilometers down into the bedrock <laughs> yeah. and we found a microbe. Found yeah. I'm like, that's just so cool. So I don't know, I don't think I have the data yet on whether it will be the exact same microbes, but I think I can pretty confidently say that some microbes will always persist and adapt yeah. to the environment as it changes. Yeah, one of the things I, I, I heard a few years back, which was amazing to me with microbes, was the idea that they're part of the geology of the planet. So, you know, like the, the dynamic nature of geology is partly in, engaging with um, microbes because they, you know, they convert things into various gases and so forth, and that changes things, as you say, kilometres down in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise thought possible. And I, I, when, I, when I think of the, the environment down in Antarctica, and I think, as you say, like there's these regions where there's, where there's no ice, what do you see in the regions where there is ice? Are they also sort of there as well, or is that sort of level of extreme environment too much for them? No, so there are also microbes that will be living in the ice and the snow. They will be mm. at a lot 
lower concentration than you would see in the soil. Um, But there are still things there that are making a living. And I know there's also, you can find like algae in the ice. Um, So I know there are some research groups who look at sort of algae in different ice sheets, which is an interesting issue because it can actually darken the ice sheet and then absorb more sun and then perpetuate melting of the ice sheet. Um, But there will also be microbes there. And I would in the future, I think, be interested at looking for aerotrophs in the ice sheet as well as in the rocks. Very cool. Now, so before you... Uh, you know, go. I I bought a couple of plants the other day in the local nursery, and I got to tell you, it was hot in the car, and they're almost dead by the time I got them home. Um, how do you keep this stuff alive on the long journey back? Like, what what is the container like that you you know have to secure these in in order to keep all this stuff going? Yeah, um, so we are transporting everything back frozen oh, right. um, because we don't want the microbial community to change from what it is when we first dug up the soil. Um, so essentially we've collected a lot of soil in a bunch of Ziploc bags that are sterile. Right. We've filled up four 50-litre eskies uh, worth of soil, yep. and we're now transporting them back in like specialised cool boxes. So I think they're actually meant to arrive back at the lab tomorrow. Oh, so they're still coming? They're, they're still coming. coming. Yep. They've been in a freezer in Cape Town, and they are now being transported back to Melbourne. So... I think, fingers crossed, I, they arrived tomorrow. I love that. I love you're down at the gate at Monash and 50 eskies turned up and you got me. That's, <laughs> that's my stuff. I got the eskies, people. Wow, that's amazing. And, and what, in terms of just mass, do you, do you have a feel for just what is the mass of all the soil being brought back? How much is there? Um, so we have probably about, 60 kilos i think wow. we, we got a permit for up to 100 mm-hmm. uh, but we definitely didn't reach all the sites that we thought we would so probably about 60 kilos of soil but on top of that i've also got colleagues in a different area of antarctica at the moment in the bunga hills and they're also collecting soil for me yeah. so my year is now basically like ruled by eight eskies worth of soil <laughs> which <laughs> is very exciting that's yeah, a huge bit of bio it's, right it's there gold. that's gold <laughs> and just finally what i mean what uh, how, how have you changed at all having been down there? I mean, I know talking to a few people who've been down there, they've really changed their perspective on a lot of things. I mean, obviously it, it sharpens your, your senses in terms of the, the, the real changes going on around the world. But I mean, how's that affected you as a, as a researcher, as a person? Yeah, I think, I mean, seeing the landscape just in person, it's sort of one of those things that's hard to capture with, mm. with a camera or yeah. with words until you're actually there. It just makes you really, appreciate how vast and wild the landscape is there like the mountains were like nothing i'd ever seen before Mm. they're just these wild shapes and vertical rock rock faces um but i think also on a more personal level it just made me realize i need to spend more time outside because i was very energized (laughs) by spending three weeks Mm. just camping every day and being outside every day and i was like okay i have to keep going camping and hiking now i'm back in australia yeah that's fabulous that's that's a reflection i haven't heard from people coming back you know they'll talk about various aspects but i haven't heard anyone say i need to be outside more it's, it's, it's great. Well, uh, Sophie, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Um, I might have to get you to keep us posted on what comes out of all the, the eskies. Esky and, updates. And, you know, esky updates <laughs> as, we, as we go into the you know, next six, 12 months and, and see what you're finding. But it's, it's fascinating. And I think, um, you know, I envy you the opportunity that you've had to go down there and, and do this work. And, you know, I did physics. Some days I wish I'd done microbiology, <laughs> you know, go to Antarctica. Thanks so much for coming on Einstein and Gago. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Sophie Holland uh, from Monash University and part of the Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future cent- Centre. Um, is it a it's, it's a special research it's a, initiative. It's yeah. an initiative, yeah. yeah. I, always, I always wonder, yeah, it's kind of, a, but there's a lot of people involved, so yeah, it's, yes. very, it's very special. We get a lot of guests thanks to SAFE, is it? SAFE. SAFE. Yeah. SAFE. We just say safe. Safe, even better. All right, uh, some important station announcements coming, folks, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. We've got about five minutes left on the Einstein and Gago. I just wanted to touch on Ewan's great love of Harry Potter. <laughs> yes. Well, Let's... as we know, you know, around the world, um, one of the primary ways that we can serve wildlife biodiversity is setting up reserves, mm, you know. So yeah. we know that humans have buggered up a lot of the world by clearing it for whether it be for urban areas, for agriculture, whatever. And so there's not a lot left actually for yeah. wildlife in many cases. And so where we do have those areas left, they're, they're super important. And um, look, in the last uh, few days, there's been a lot of hoo-ha about a particular show that's been proposed for a place called The Briars down on the Mornington Peninsula. And uh, for Harry Potter, basically a big mm. a loud uh, light and sound show where people would go in and have this kind of, I guess, immersive experience at night time. Which in itself sounds great. Which in itself is wonderful. Uh, yeah. Nothing against people mm. having fun, but unfortunately they put it in an area, yeah, which really does have high biodiversity value, including you know these powerful owls there, which are a threatened species. Right. And so we know from around the world that you know subjecting animals to extended periods of loud noises, la- and lasers. Light, yeah. Thousands of people walking through their environment, leaving mm. that smell around, can cause them fear, can cause them anxiety, can cause them stress. Stress, of course, we know can lead yep. to disease and so forth, or increased risk of disease, etc. Um, can prevent or even, um, you know, um, stymie their ability to breed for them to raise their young, etc. So it, it's a real concern. And, um, yeah, so we, we had an article, I was a co-author on an article um, that was published in the conversation a couple of days ago. Um, but I guess this is a, is a concern that it's happening uh, in, in many locations, not just on the Mornington Peninsula Shire, but it's happened in other parts of Australia. There was a big light, light laser show in central Australia um, where there's a population of uh, threatened black-footed rock wallabies, and there was a lot of concern about that. Um, and it's happened overseas as well, um, including in Belgium, um, where they've now said that they won't actually be doing that show again because of too much concern about the impact on wildlife. So I guess we're just emphasising that no one wants to stop people having wonderful, um, you know, artistic, um, dramatic experiences. That yeah. that's wonderful. We should be supporting the arts however getting, we possibly and can. Outside. And yeah. getting outside, that's a wonderful thing. But mm. they shouldn't be in nature areas that were specifically set up to conserve biodiversity, particularly wildlife, right? They're just not compatible. So I, I guess that's the, the take-home point. And there's plenty of alternative locations. Well, it's really so. sad that, like, they found out that they impacted the, you know, nature and the wildlife there after after they've done it, like surely there should be some simulation that can tell you that before you you do well, that think, show and, then, and been, harm animals. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading about this now for at least a month. I think there was a there was a few things that were coming out and local groups saying no, don't don't do yep. this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not new. Yeah. Um, what is new, I think, is that it's reached a bit of a crescendo in yeah. terms of public um, opinion on this. Is that because of Harry Potter? Me. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it gets in the news, you know. And, yeah. and well, the but, petition's now got over 20,000 signatures, yeah, right? right? So I think, it, like yeah. you say, I think it's reached its critical mass <clears throat> where more or people are aware of it. Um, yeah, the issues, as you say, have been around for a long time. But mm. I think it just, unfortunately, is a, a case of really bad consultation, yeah. um, both with members of the public in general, but also with wildlife experts to say, look, maybe this is not the best place to put it. Yeah. And there's plenty of locations. Plenty of locations. And, um, I mean, the sad part of it, of course, is some of the best locations, some of the most beautiful ones are the ones that we're protecting. Mm. Yep. Something in that. 
<laughs> exactly. You know, if you think about it. I wonder why we do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're protecting this area. It's awesome. <laughs> well, that's why. Exactly. You know? So, unfortunately, though, if you want to keep protecting it, you have to. You know, the rules don't change just because a big company comes in and wants to make a bucket load of money. Indeed. And I think that's where these things often get tripped yep. up. So, well, well done for re- writing the article. I will admit I haven't read it yet, but um, I've got it in my to-do list. <laughs> I have a bookmark. Yeah. So you got a bookmark. Yeah. I got it in the list of things I need the robot exactly. body for because exactly. I've got three yeah. lifetimes. I've got another, all, all you I've need got to do is. Google Harry Potter and the Disenchanted Wildlife. <laughs> Live is on the Twitter feed. Good name. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Yun. Good to see you again thank today. You. Dr. Susie, thanks so much for coming Always in. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Liv, for doing our Twitter feed. A huge thank you to our two guests today. Really interesting stuff. Thank you to you, the listener, for joining us for an hour of science. We really do appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Triple R and to uh, all of those who are supporting Triple R through their subscriptions. We wouldn't exist without you. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.